As you can probably tell, I drew the short straw on this one. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not the most popular topic to address these days. What comes to your mind when you hear the words church discipline? What's the first thought or emotion? Uh, chances are it's not all that positive, especially if you were born sometime before the year 1960. And if you were born later in the 1970s or beyond, the concept may not mean a whole lot. But if you're part of the boomer or the pre-boomer generations, you may have memories of divisions and controversies over, a, uh, over whether a woman should be aware, allowed to wear a hat to church instead of a covering. I don't know where your grandpappy stood on that one, but that probably was an issue during his time. Right? Um, another issue was whether a woman could wear a wedding veil instead of the covering at a wedding, and whether there could even be rings involved in the service, because that was kind of worldly adornment, right? And there were controversies over these things. Or if you're from that era, you may remember the embarrassment you felt by being witnessed by a, for, a fellow church member as you were slinking out of the LCBO. <laughs> Alcohol was also an issue. It's like the joke that people tell about Mennonites. Well, what happens if you take one Mennonite fishing? He drinks all your beer. <laughs> what happens if you take two Mennonites fishing? They don't drink any of your beer. <laughs> so how many Mennonites should you take on a fishing trip? <laughs> At least two. <laughs> As I was preparing for this sermon, I realized how church discipline issues had affected my own extended family on both the Herb side and the Zaire side. In the early 1980s, my mother's sister, Carol Herb, while in her midlife years, married a Mennonite minister named Cyril Gingrich. The problem was that Cyril was divorced. His wife had been institutionalized for many years with severe mental illness, and he finally sought a divorce in order to be able to marry my Aunt Carol. He then approached the conference asking if his ministerial credentials would still be valid. And this became a significant issue for discernment. Even public discernment. Um, I was speaking to Sam, and Sam remembers a public uh, discussion on the delegate floor at MCEC. I'm not sure if it was called MCEC at that time, Mennonite Conference of Ontario, um, about whether an ordained, divorced, and remarried minister could, could still be ordained. Um, it took place over two days. And it was finally decided that, yes, Cyril could keep his ordination. However, a statement was issued or reissued on the sanctity of lifelong marriage. Um, needless to say, my aunt did not have good memories of all of this public debate and the, the exposure she felt. I'm aware that discussion on the status of divorced people in the Mennonite church has been painful and difficult for many over the years. On the Zaire side, my grandparents experienced a congregational split over discipline issues. They were part of the Riverdale congregation in Millbank, and in the early 1950s, there were serious disagreements over appropriate dress and about the use of technology, radios in the home, 
and debate over the new technology of television. Menozer was the pastor and Valentine Nafziger was a deacon. In 1951, the congregation felt that they really should have a bishop, and so they held an ordination by lot. When my ordination by lot was putting little bits of uh, a strip of paper in a hymnal, hand, mixing up the hymnals, handing them to the candidates, and the one who draw, drew the hymnal with the piece of paper in it would be chosen. And the belief was that God somehow, in God's wisdom, was, was involved in this process. Well, Valentine Nafziger chose the hymnal with a piece of paper, and it became the bishop. And he was more conservative than Menozer, and he was insisting that the proper behavior in the church was for all the women to wear cape dresses, or continue wearing cape dresses, and for the men to wear straight coats, not the ones with lapels, but the more simple coats, and absolutely no radios in the home. And if you had a radio, he or the, uh, would, would come and find it and, and remove it, or um, if you refused, you could lose your church membership. Well, this created a lot of controversy. The two leaders couldn't agree, and in 1956, Valentine took 23 people from River, Riverdale Congregation and started a new, more conservative congregation on the other side of town, um, which later joined the conservative Mennonite uh, conference. My grandparents stayed at Riverdale. They did not go, but I know in, in his later years, my grandfather started wearing a plain coat, um, and I'm not entirely sure why that was, but these were very live issues and created a lot of tensions within families. You know, some families going with the new conservative group, others staying at Riverdale, lots of, lots of tension. So church discipline is part of our Anabaptist and Mennonite story, whether we like it or not. And while it may seem uh, petty or problematic to many of us, it's rooted in our particular ecclesiology an ecclesiology meaning a theology of the church, an understanding of who the church is, which holds all members to a very high moral standard and which calls us to be actively accountable to one another for our membership and discipleship. It's a good theology in so many ways, but as they say, the devil is in the details. Article 14 states that church discipline is intended to nurture and maintain a faithful life and witness as a church community. I think the key thing to note about an Anabaptist understanding of the church is that it is to be a visible community of people that looks and acts differently than the average sort of community in the world. We're called to the high standard that Jesus sets out in his Sermon on the Mount. On loving enemies, Jesus says, if you love only the people who love you back, what, what good is that? You know, don't even the tax collectors do that? Or if you greet and are friendly only with your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even, even the Gentiles do that. No, he says, I call you to a higher standard than the average. And then this verse, which um, is very intimidating, I think, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. He's saying your behavior, your lifestyle, is to be your witness. 
Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's these verses and these teachings that form much of the foundation for our Anabaptist ecclesiology. Uh, the early Anabaptists we know were very well known for their moral rectitude. Their main critique of the Catholic Church and even the reformers like the Lutherans and the Calvinists was that they did not take the reformation of behavior seriously enough. They felt that these other churches were still too preoccupied with liturgical rituals and with theology. And they said, well, so what if uh, the theologian says we're justified by grace? Like, what? so what if you have the, the right person doing the sacraments at the front? If the people are still living conventional lives, or they're still going out to the tavern and whatnot, what good is any of it? You know, Jesus calls us to a new morality. And so for the Anabaptists, this new lifestyle <clears throat> included things like not going to the tavern, not cursing, not getting drunk, um, always being honest in business deals, refusing to take up weapons, of course, avoiding gossip and slanderous talk. And in the records in the 16th century, during the times of persecution, there are documented cases of people being accused of being Anabaptists simply because others witnessed their upright moral behavior. So, for example, um, Heinrich had stopped going to the tavern, and people noticed this. They said, he must be an Anabaptist. So they tipped off the authorities, and poor Heinrich was hauled in, you know, to make an account for this change in behavior, and he said, you know, I'm not an Anabaptist. I'm just an ordinary Catholic. Please believe me. I'm just trying to obey my wife. <laughs> so this is um, some of the concept and the, uh, this is where the concept and the practice of church discipline comes from, from this very high view of the church. This view that says the church is to be a living and visibly transformed community of moral integrity. And so if this is the vision and the mission of the church, then it follows that there needs to be some way of maintaining the witness. There needs to be a process of correction and restoration when someone falls off the wagon or falls off the high road. It all sounds good theologically, theoretically, but it's true that the devil is in the details. You know, for, for exactly what, what does exactly it look like, this faithful life of discipleship? And who finally decides what it is? I think our Mennonite story, in many ways, has centered around this very question. And we know that we've had numerous church splits over the years, numerous divisions in congregations. There's, there's an incredible amount of Mennonite Anabaptist-related denominations that have split over these issues. And I think all these splits stand as a testament to the fact that we can't achieve any consensus on this question of what the faithful life of discipleship looks like. David Martin, um, executive minister of MCEC, was with us a couple weeks ago. And he said in his, his talk that there are a number of congregations now who are in the process of leaving our conference. Some are joining the Mennonite Brethren denomination and others are unclear about their future affiliations. 
For these congregations, a life of faithful discipleship can never include the blessing of same-sex marriages. It can never include the acceptance of gay sexuality as being on par with heterosexuality. But as David said, it's more than that as well, as they, as they describe it. For them, it's also an issue about correct doctrine and teaching, about biblical authority, about a proper theology of salvation, about Christ as the only atonement for sin, the only way to salvation for all people. These are painful discussions and disagreements. And this will be the first time since that conservative um, exodus in the 1960s that congregations have left our conference. So these issues continue, and um, it's a live issue. As David said, these churches are full of very good people who care about being faithful disciples. They just define the lines of discipleship and the limits of proper teaching differently than we do. So who finally decides what a life of faithful discipleship looks like? We don't really know. And I think many of us have um, mostly painful memories of having tried to define it in the past. I was thinking that in the Gospels, Jesus talks a lot more about money than he ever did about sex or theology. And yet we've rarely, if ever, made our economic behavior a marker of uh, church discipline. It's often been kept fairly private, right? Um, I think many have come to the conclusion that it's practically not possible to defend and monitor the boundaries of the proper Christ-like life. It seems to me that the article um, in the Confession doesn't really acknowledge this difficulty. It talks about sin, but what, well, how do you define what a sin is? When, um, it's, it's unclear. I suppose one thing that we all agree on these days across the board is that a life of faithful discipleship can never include uh, abusive behavior of any kind. And here we've learned that clear policy and decisive action are required. It's somewhat ironic that for a church historically preoccupied with church discipline, that we haven't been the first ones as Mennonites to develop policies and procedures around these issues. We're learning just like all other churches are learning. Our seminary, AMBS, issued an apology in March of 2015 on how it did not act swiftly enough in the face of complaints about sexual abuse inflicted by John Howard Yoder while he was teaching there in the 70s and 80s. The president addressed the victims of the abuse by saying, quote, I am sorry that by choosing to remain silent about your violation, we isolated you, only deepening your sense of betrayal. I am sorry that in our exhaustion and desire for closure, we didn't listen to those of you who said this is not finished that the full truth of what happened has not yet been named. I believe our conference of MCEC also has regrets for having dropped its intervention into the complaints surrounding Yuri Bender 
as soon as he surrendered his credentials in the early 90s. At that point, they just dropped the issue. In retrospect, we understand that it, now that it would have been better to have continued to invite further reports from affected women and to have facilitated ongoing opportunities for healing. We're all learning, and we're all in agreement that our church communities must be places of zero tolerance for abusive behavior of any kind. This, too, is an issue of church discipline. It just represents the outside and the obvious edge of it. It's a consensus that we share, uh, not only with churches, but with increasingly with secular society. And it is ironic that we've been learning just as much from secular society as we've been teaching. So what about this Article 14? Do we agree with it anymore? In theory, I would say, but probably in practice only in these more extreme cases. Here at Rockway, as long as you desire to be part of this church community, as long as you seek to believe in God and in Jesus and in Jesus' vision for the world, and as long as you're not doing any abusive behavior, you're welcome here without any further scrutiny. Uh, when you come, we're not going to quiz you on your lifestyle, ask you to reveal your personal finances. We're not going to take church attendance and keep track of how many times you've been here. We're not going to examine your sex life or find out the details of your beliefs before we allow you to be a member and share in communion. We're going to accept you and welcome you just as you are, a fellow sinner like all the rest of us, flawed, imperfect, hypocritical perhaps, and struggling. And hopefully, we're going to encourage you. We all need encouragement. I would say that our form of church discipline at Rockway is more in the affirmative direction than the corrective. And not that this is perfect, but this just is, seems to be the way it is. And so I'd like to propose that we recommit ourselves to the affirmative style of church discipline, to interventions of encouragement and support, deliberately making time to notice one another, uh, to thank one another for being here, to inquire into each other's lives and what's happening. Um, we just had a, a film event last night, and a lot of people did uh, put in a lot of work for it. Um, Emily, who, who chaired the committee, John and Sharon, and volunteers who made the food. Ryan, who did the sound. Uh, others who helped set up and cook. And so uh, part of this positive discipline is noticing these things and, and giving thanks. Also to Jerry Steingart, who um, the sump pump failed uh, uh, you know, a, couple, a week ago. He was in here on his own time f figuring that out. A lot of people do a lot of things. So discipline um, is not only a corrective thing. Another, another sense of discipline right, is dedication. You know, you're disciplined to going to the gym. You're disciplined in doing practices that are, are life-giving. Um, and so I think we all have room to grow in this regard, to dedicate ourselves to these positive disciplines. 
of reaching out to one another, of speaking to new people who are at church, who we may not know, but out of our comfort zone, make the effort, speak to them, um, invite them over for a meal, uh, lend a hand when someone's in need. Uh, the stewardship committee was presenting this morning. We're in the process of select, um, soliciting pledges for time and money for a refugee family. Encourage one another. This is something we can do. So, may we recommit ourselves to these positive disciplines of Christ that we may indeed be like a city on a hill, letting our light shine. Amen.